Hello, you're listening to On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspid from Tel Aviv. Even the unending tragedy of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has its comic moments. At a news conference uh, last Wednesday, Yahya Sinwar, the head of uh, Hamas in Gaza, supplied a bit of comic relief. Answering a reporter's question, Sinwar uh, ridiculed the fact that the occupation, as he called it, has failed for more than two years to overcome its political chaos and install a stable functioning government. Sinwar seems to have forgotten that he himself failed to win three Hamas election rounds this year, but Sinwar did win the fourth round, which is more than can be said of Benjamin Netanyahu, who even after four elections still leads a mostly paralyzed transition government, plunging from legal and political crisis to the next, and most recently into the Gaza crisis. Despite uh, his problems, Netanyahu had it uh, so much easier when Donald Trump was president. Trump gave Netanyahu backing for absolutely everything he wanted to do. Israel was euphoric. Nationalists, Israeli settlers wandered the halls of the West Wing. The Palestinian issue was shoved under the bus. Gaza was under siege and Hassan Nasrallah was hiding out in his bunker trying to deal with Lebanon's existential problems. Everything came crashing down once Trump flew off to his fairy tale life in Florida. The harsh realities of the Middle East were back. The fighting with Gaza earlier this month ended in a military victory for Israel, but a resounding triumph for Hamas in terms of public perception. Nasrallah, riding the coattails of Sinwar's success, went back to issuing threats and at the same time, the U.S. went back to negotiating with Iran. Wait, that's not all. Even as Israel was intercepting rockets from Gaza, Arabs and Jews were fighting on the streets of mixed towns, raising the dreaded nightmare scenario in which Israel's Arab citizens rise up against the Jewish state, even as its Arab neighbors attack its borders. In this nightmare, the army is overpowered and life in Israel becomes hell. The Shin Bet Security Agency puts the number of Arab rioters inside Israel earlier this month at 7,000, a tiny fraction of the country's 1.6 million Arabs. But uh, the scenes were frightening enough to con uh, conjure up all the phobias and traumas of uh, pogroms and the Holocaust embedded in a collective Jewish memories. We will talk today about this uh, with our guest, Ruth Wasserman Lande, a former diplomat, a researcher, and social activist. Ruth Lande lectures on Israel's relations with uh, the Arab world and on Israel's complex tribal, tribal society. She's a doctoral candidate. She served as deputy Israeli ambassador to Egypt and did a brief stint as a Knesset member for the Blue and White Party. She also advised the late President Shimon Peres on social initiatives, among them the rehabilitation of an Arab Bedouin village. She has lived with her family in the mixed Jewish-Arab town of Lod, which was the main flashpoint of the recent rioting, where a Jewish resident was lynched to death by an Arab mob. Ruth Wasserman Lande, join us right after this brief break. Thank you. 
you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Now, uh, let's say hello uh, uh, to my friend and colleague, uh, Ruth Wasserman-Landa. Hi, Ruth. How are you doing this uh, evening or morning? Very good. How are you, Ben? Thank you. Uh, let's dive into business and start with the domestic routing that we've seen in Israel uh, for 10 or 11 days during uh, the last operation in Gaza. How would you define what happened here in uh, May 2021, an uprising by Israel's Arab minority, a taste of Israel's most horrific nightmare, or isolated local events rather than a strategic development? You know, Ben, first of all, um, I would say that the 11 days that we've experienced in Israel were quite traumatic for a lot of Israelis, especially those Jewish people living in mixed cities like Lod, Acre, and others, even Haifa, uh, because they were Arab uh, citizens of the state of Israel who had begun to throw stones, to even shoot with, um, you know, with gunfire and do things that are, um, I would even say more than rioting, but truly um, antagonistic towards their Jewish neighbors. And your questions are right on spot. The question is, is there indeed an uprising? I think that the answer is not at all. On the contrary, I think that there was an instigation by the word Al-Aqsa, and that instigation was purposefully and even budget-wise uh, maneuvered from outside. The Hamas this time, I think, wanted to take on a kind of a role that was not only um, let my people go kind of thing within Gaza, but really to instigate a kind of, I am the owner or the father, the father head of the Palestinian people in general, and therefore I'll be the role player of head of um, you know, freeing Jerusalem, freeing the entire state of Israel, and really liberating the whole of Palestine from 1948. And just by using that key word, Al-Aqsa, it sort of opened up a Pandora's box and allowed for really quite uh, seriously violent writing to take place. Now that obviously, goes hand in hand with a situation that is already in place for several years. And that's the terrible crime and violence 
that we see within the Arab-Israeli society that has truly um, gone way, way over the border uh, in terms of its, um, its rate, uh, its number, and its uh, quite violent acts of murder and so on between Arab, let's say, underworld figures um, and the Arab-Israeli population in general. I agree with you 100%, and uh, I, I want to, to, to talk a little more about it, because as you said, it was very traumatic, even for, for a veteran journalist like myself. And uh, I think we have to say that it was not only a one-sided uh, rioting, because uh, there were a lot of uh, Jews that were uh, retaliating, and then a, a, a lynch attempt in Batyam and many other places. And also the, a, a very interesting figure I just learned about uh, in the last weekend, during to the Shabak information and police information, around 7,000 uh, Arab rioters were uh, taking a part in, these, in this phenomenon in uh, May. So it is exactly like you said, it is uh, not a... Uh, it's not a substantial uh, a portion of the population, but the, the damage was huge. They were able to paralyze many of our internal systems and, and major highways. And I, I saw also your piece in Ma'ariv in the last weekend. What do you suggest? How can Israel tackle this problem? Because, you know, the state of Israel nurtured and, and helped to raise this monster of, of, of crime within the Arab society, what can we do about it right now? Okay, so Ben, you've asked a relatively complex question. I'll try and break it down into several um, uh, segments. You know, first of all, let me address what you said that is very uh, dire, and that is the, uh, of course, the Jewish uh, lynching. So you said it, it happened on a number of occasions. I would definitely emphasize the word number um, because it is a, a violent crime um, any such perpetrator should definitely and without a question sit behind closed uh, bars in jail and yet I, I need I feel the need to to correct the the impression that there's any kind of symmetry not that that makes that uh, any less dire but there were a number, a very few number of um, instigated uh, offenses uh, really perpetrated against Arabs. I would say that these kinds of people like the members of an organization, a Jewish organization called La Familia or others like that, um, there needs to be a serious look at putting the heads of those organizations, small and marginal, despite the fact that they are in jail, because this is something that is definitely not the Jewish way and completely against the law. Having said all that, um, as you said, the trauma is significant, the damage is significant, and the fact that there is a, um, a core of uh, Arab Israeli, I would say, underworld operatives that have so-called been um, even I would say ignored to a point by the Israeli authorities throughout the last decade needs to be addressed and I've been yelling and shouting and writing and speaking about this for quite a number of years. 
um, we see murders in broad daylight within the Arab villages throughout Israel um, on a weekly basis. We see the issue of protection and asking for uh, money from businesses throughout Israel by Arab underworld operatives. We see a huge, unbelievable number of illegal weapons being carried and used by Arab operatives within Israel. And I'll even go further and say, Ben, that when the uh, members of Knesset, the Arab members of Knesset, um, not only did they not try to quiet uh, the fuel and to, uh, let's say, quiet the winds of uh, violence in the recent uprising uh, with Hamas and so on, but in fact, they called for an all-day um, kind of a demonstration by the Arab population. Now, let's say that that's okay, provided that the demonstrations are quiet. Although I do believe that there needed to be, rather than a demonstration, a kind of a call by all leaders, including Arab leaders, to go back to normality, to live a mutual living, to see how we do work together. There were indeed these kind of leaders, and I saw them in the mayors of the Arab villages, some of them very courageous indeed. Um, for example, the mayor of Jaljulia. So he and other mayors like him, together with moderate sheikhs or uh, religious uh, figures, stood at the entrance of those Arab villages. And in fact, you know, they, they offered coffee to those who wanted to go to work despite the demonstration. Mm -hmm. And indeed stood at the, at the entrance of those villages and offered coffee. In other words, saying, we give you the green light, go in peace. A couple of hundred of meters after that, there was another checkpoint, check post, whatever you want to call it, in inverted commas, of course, and ironically, of people with live weapons, those underworld operatives, saying to people, you either turn around and go back to the demonstration, or you will pay for it with your lives or the lives of your family members, which is absolutely and undeniably insane. And what I wrote in the Marif piece that you've mentioned and what I've been advocating for quite a while is a very simple um, yet difficult uh, kind of equation. Anybody, but anybody who raises a hand against the law needs to sit in jail, whether it takes the Shin Bet and the police by strengthening the police, which had been weakened in the last decade significantly, these need to take care of law and order within Israel. This is key to the very survival, and I'm not um, sorry for the word I picked, it's not accidental, of the continuation and the stability of the state of Israel. And Ben, I'm, I'm happy to say that from yesterday, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I feel that this was a kind of a wake-up call and that mm -hmm. the authorities are just beginning to really tackle just a little bit the issue. Yes, I think uh, there is a, a big Shabak and police uh, operation called Law and Order, and they're trying to locate and to find and to arrest anybody, Jew or Arab, 
that was involved in these uh, in the, uh, these riots. And I think uh, you mentioned the mayor of Jaljulia. I can mention my uh, neighboring uh, village here, Kfar Kassem, uh, the mayor of Kfar Kassem also was involved with, with my hometown, hometown mayor in, in efforts to calm down. And I want to, I, I want to, to you to try to to get inside the Arab-Israeli soul for me. Could you try to describe? By the way, I think I read somewhere that you lived with your family in Acre. In, I'm sorry, in Lod, where the, right. the heart of the writing was located. And could you try to describe the feelings, interests, and identity of the average Israeli-Arab citizen? Which is stronger? his or her hatred of the country or love of, of the Israeli country, although they suffer from some discrimination, uh, do they appreciate the fact that they live in a democratic country, unlike many other Arabs? Would they, would they want the Jewish state replaced by, by some sort of Palestinian state? Or do they sense an affinity with their Israeli identity despite it all? So first of all, I did live with my husband and three children in the city of Lod for a decade. I, I no longer live there for almost three years, but uh, knowing personally a lot of the people, both Arab and Jewish in Lod, I can definitely account for the true trauma that a lot of the Jewish inhabitants experience uh, simply by seeing some of the Arab uh, inhabitants uh, whom they even personally know, um, really uh, take up arms, some of them uh, live weapons and some just stones or, or sticks and so on, and attack uh, e either Israeli symbols like synagogues, which is dreadful in Islam and looked down upon by moderate Muslims, by the way, um, and uh, people in general. And the trauma is deep, and um, it, it, is, it, it will take a long time and a lot of work to calm that trauma down. That is true, I would say, particularly of Lord. Lord uh, really bears the brunt of um, the vast majority of this kind of true violence. There was also violence in Acre and so on, but I feel that the true trauma was experienced particularly in Lod, but in general, the trust that was built over tens of years between Arabs and Jews was a little bit, um, even more than a little bit, I would say hurt. Now, you wanted me to try and enter the soul. So as a Jewish Ashkenaziah, um, <laughs> uh, kind of a blonde, light-haired uh, woman, I shall do my best, uh, knowing Arabic, speaking Arabic fluently, having lived in an Arab country for three years, being very, very deeply involved for years and years in the Arab-Israeli society, voluntarily, both work-wise and, um, you know, in my free time, building engines of growth, working very closely with different communities in the south and the north of Israel in the Arab sense, I will do my best. And I want I think... to just to emphasize before that it all happened after a year or so of, I think, unprecedented 
feelings uh, uh, of Jews and Arabs in Israel towards each other because we suddenly saw that we are stuck here together, the Arab doctors, the Arab nurses, the, everybody was sick or well, and, and it, it was suddenly a feeling of optimism. And just like that, it all vanished with, the, with the, these riots. So um, I think that uh, in general, I would say, you know, the, the pandemic really allowed for everybody to see that given the fact that there are so many doctors, as you say, and nurses of uh, Arab origin, um, that we can live together despite everything and despite the dual uh, identities and so on. And also there was a very impressive um, kind of a gesture done by a lot of Arab communities, particularly in the north of the country, with the catastrophe that happened uh, on Meron with the ultra-Orthodox community and so many people um, that have died or were wounded. And a lot of the Arab uh, communities offered food and drink and repose along the roads and helping really the ultra-Orthodox people. That was really heartwarming to watch. And then suddenly, as you say, it all sort of blew up into thin air or so it seemed. So allow me to say that the vast majority, and I still stand behind that, not being naive, but saying that the vast majority of people want to build a house, have a profession, have their children study and educated and live a peaceful life. But because there are a lot of people that have family members, both in the West Bank and, and Gaza Strip, because of the dual identity, and we must take that into account, there are Palestinians of Israeli citizenship, but there are Palestinians, um, not very similar, but a little bit similar to Jewish people around the world that feel a kind of affinity to Israel, and yet need to be completely within the framework of the legal systems uh, of the countries in which they live. And of course, live by the rules um, that the societies which host them uh, and in which there are citizens live by and abide by them, of course. And the question is, does Israel stand by its own rules um, I would say that it needs to be a little bit more strict on the rules on the one side, and at the same time, work on the issue of inclusion, of infrastructure, of job diversity and opportunity uh, provision, and so on and so forth. Engines of growth in the periphery in general and in the Arab sector uh, within the periphery in particular. And, and that's something that we must, must work on the duties on the one hand and the inclusion, the feeling of inclusion, that is something that needs to be addressed. But first and foremost, as a basis, as a platform, and before anything else, to really sharpen the rules. Israeli authorities have not done that, neither to the Jewish people, nor to the Arab people. Mm -hmm. They've been lax on rules in terms of what is allowed, what is not allowed, weapons, are they legal, are they not legal, driving on the roads, and so on and so forth. So there needs to be a sharpening both of the rules and the um, 
and the rights of the Arab people within Israel. And that's something that is key to the very core, to the essence of the unity of this very uh, fragmented society at the moment. I think it was very sharp. And now let's, uh, let's try to, uh, to turn south. And I wanted to ask you, uh, how do you see the reciprocal relationship between the latest violence with Gaza and the unexpected violence within Israel that we just uh, talked about? Who lit the match? Was it indeed all about Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or uh, was it planned? Planned eruption of violence by those seeking Israel's destruction? So um, I'm not sure how popular my opinion is, but I can tell you as an analyst, as somebody who truly follows um, a hell of a lot of the social media um, in Arabic uh, and just about, oh, I try almost anything that is written about the Middle East and so on. And again, um, being very close to the Arab rhetoric within Israel, I think that the issue is much more on the macro level on the strategic level between the perpetrators of this round, and that's Hamas. But Hamas, let me remind whoever is listening, um, is the perpetrator on the tactical level. Uh, Hamas is the arm of a much larger perpetrator, and that's, of course, Iran. But I would dare add to the question a role player that is rarely mentioned, and that's Qatar. Israel has turned Qatar, much like other role players in the international arena, into a partner, a partner that is uh, giving the money, the funds that were uh, really given to the Hamas, uh, facilitated by Israel throughout the last several years. Qatar is an instigator of a lot of unrest, both in the Western world, including in the United States, as well as in the region. Uh, and I stand behind my words. And the question is, uh, as you say, is there a larger plan? I believe that there is. Turkey, Qatar, Iran using their arms vis-a-vis -vis the Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the south in order to create a kind of an uproar within Israel proper by the Arab Israelis on the one hand, and in the West Bank by the Palestinians there. Have they been very successful? No, they tried. They tried us out. They tried Israel to see how indeed strong the internal material is. And that's where we stood the test and we shall stand the test right now. Do we actually create those measures of law and order, and at the same time create rights and inclusion for all citizens, that's where we shall stand the test or not. But is it strategic? Then I believe it is. And I believe that it's not an Israeli problem alone. It's a regional stability issue, thereby really influencing the entire world. Egypt understands that. The UAE understands that, and the United States should also very closely follow this endeavor by Qatar, Iran, Hezbollah, Turkey, Hamas, to really instigate a complete instability in the region 
in order to allow its own interests to take place. Yes, let me just add that Qatar, unlike all the other uh, uh, names that you just mentioned, is playing a double uh, uh, part because in one, one hand, it's what, whatever you dis- just described. And on the other hand, the Qatari messenger is the guy that brings uh, uh, $30 million in cash. Precisely. To, yes, inside Gaza in order to come. Uh, uh, the, the situation in Israel supports it, and this is a very strange, uh, let's say even bizarre situation. But I want to, uh, uh, you just mentioned the strategic issue. I want to ask you about this because Israel's top brass and most politicians think Israel won the fighting in Gaza, while Sinwar and many in the Arab world consider the outcome a heroic, symbolic, and historic victory for Hamas. How do you explain these uh, diverging views? So very, very, very easily, in fact, Ben, I just want to ask your permission and say one more word about Qatar. Qatar is now being named as one of the main role players in rebuilding Gaza. Mm-hmm. And I think that one should uh, re-look at this policy, both in terms of uh, the United States and Israel. I think that Egypt, with its own companies and its own supervision, should be the main role player simply because it has similar interest in maintaining the stability. That together with the West Bank leadership, weak as it may be, but at least to have a foot in the rebuilding of Gaza in order to begin to strengthen it. And I know that that is also an interest of the current administration in the United States, but Qatar definitely should be downplayed in terms of its role in rebuilding Gaza, simply you, because of the words that you said before. You know, uh, the military in Israel, and I heard it from the chief of staff himself, uh, is recommending to the, to the political uh, leaders not uh, to block the, the Qatari money, but to, to, to uh, let it go into Gaza through the PA. Exactly. Uh, so I think this exactly. could be the solution. I, I don't believe it is exactly. possible, but you know where the reality here. But anyway, how can you explain the, the, the differences between whatever happened on the ground, you know, the success of the IDF uh, to, to, uh, to destroy the, the, the metro, the underground metro be, uh, in Gaza and to block all the attempts of, uh, of Hamas to, to hurt Israel strategically. On, on the other hand, Hamas is the clear leader of the of this uh, situation. Right. So declaratively, you know, these kind of terrorist organizations have a kind of a a very interesting rhetoric um, of always being successful whenever, you know, something happens vis-a-vis Israel or any other factor, in fact. And it's very, very painful. And, um, you know, it's heartbreaking, truly, that they take children and, um, you know, distribute candy to people who've lost their houses with all the rubble and the suffering, quite frankly, of the population that they take hostage and use as human shields within. The Gazan population is in a very, very bad shape. And to call it a success is, I mean, it's truly to make an ironic, um, very, very cynical joke of the matter. But of course, rhetorically, they have to do that in order to try and appear to their people as victorious. One more thing is on their side, and that's the social media, which is still largely unsupervised. 
there's so many people that um, you know continue this thread of anti-Israeli blatant anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli rhetoric on the social media and these celebrations so-called by the and victorious um, celebrations by the Hamas feed that kind of social media making it even larger than life itself but in essence de facto the facts remain that militarily there is a clear victory now is there a side that is victorious in war you know ben we adults we've seen a few things of course not but is there an army that can say after 4500 rockets being absolutely insanely thrown at civilian population in israel um that have attacked the attacker and have gained significant um very um measurable uh victorious gains and objectives absolutely yes without a doubt they can be measured they can be numbered they can be in an excel sheet shown to the world does rhetoric work better in superficial terms in terms of the greater public Uh, and public opinion in the world yes and therefore this empty superficial rhetoric of the hamas works quite well but it has little to do with reality one last question if and i'll be uh, thankful if you uh, if i'll get a, a short answer ruth wasserman lander sure. can you try uh, to explain me uh, or or may, do you think The repeated military friction with Hamas and the eruption of uh, Arab violence within Israel are a threat to Israel's flourishing relationship with a growing number of Arab and Muslim countries. I think that it can be a threat. I think that the UAE is uh, very, very determined to show the world what a true peace agreement is. Its leadership made a stand. we shall show the world what is a role model for emulation in peace building and we've seen that they've made very supportive comments yes they've expressed concern which is legitimate and yet they've shown the world and shown the arab world that nonetheless they stand against terrorism and of course hamas is seen by them as a terrorist organization despite supporting the palestinian people and i think that by and large the governments in the region are on israel's side will turkey qatar and uh iran uh be our friends i think it will take uh, let's put it very gently a little bit longer Let, let's be, be wait and see and be patient it was a fascinating <laughs> conversation uh, ruth wasserman landa i thank you very much for this uh, thank you ben for the opportunity we'll uh, be back in uh, after a short break with some final thoughts thank you to darut thank you to darda I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of the award-winning media news site El Monitor, where we cover the Middle East with some of the best reporters and columnists anywhere. And I'm excited to announce our new podcast, On the Middle East, where each week I will interview newsmakers from the U.S. and the region about the latest news and trends with additional commentary from our on-the-ground correspondents. Those of you who follow the region know that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And to cite another great movie line, every time the U.S. tries to get out, the region pulls us back.
Your time is valuable, so let me promise you this. You will learn something and you will never be bored because each week we'll be talking with and listening to those leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in this critical and fascinating region. So please subscribe to On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. I think uh, a major part of this interesting uh, conversation with uh, Ruth Vassamalande was uh, focused uh, in the internal situation within Israel, uh, between uh, Israeli Arabs and, uh, and the majority in Israel uh, who are Jews. And uh, Ruth Vassamalande said that uh, the events during these 11 days of uh, riots were traumatic. Uh, for many, many Israelis, uh, Jews and Arabs alike, especially Israelis who live in the mixed cities. By the way, she herself lived for a decade in Lod, one of the most uh, problematic mixed cities in Israel. She did not say or, or define the, whatever we saw uh, during these days and, uh, as an uprising of the Arab population in Israel, uh, but she, she, she thinks that uh, Hamas uh, started and ignited the, the deep feelings of every Muslim in Israel and, and outside of Israel to the word Al-Aqsa Mosque. This was a key word that opens a Pandora box that ignited the violence, uh, according to Rudvassar Malande. The deep real reason for the uh, magnitude of the violence and the huge amount of illegal weapons and firearms that are uh, held by Israeli Arabs for many years and ignored by the, the establishment and the state. Ruth Wasserman said that Israel will, will not be able to ignore it anymore. It has to, to understand that this monster has to be uh, contained and uh, maybe start a, a special operation to put the heads of the, of the crime families, especially within Arab population, behind bars and collect hundreds of thousands of illegal firearms and, and weapons that, uh, that are held by this population. I hope you found it uh, interesting and I hope to find you here uh, next week in uh, All Israel in Al Monitor. I am Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. Take care.